If you have your Bible, open it with, with me to the book of Lamentations, please. And if you have your bulletin, remove from it the study guide for today, entitled Jeremiah on the front. Now, I know we've already shared from Jeremiah last Sunday, but today we come to a book of the Bible that is called Lamentations. And Lamentations was written by Jeremiah as well. And that's our study for today from the book of Lamentations and the book of Jeremiah. Some things I'd like to share with you today. The book of Lamentations is from the word lament. Lament. To lament means to express sorrow and regret or unhappiness. It is associated as well with grief, tears, sadness, and perhaps groaning. So, as we read about this book, and, and we do read this book, Lamentations, you will be reading it in a few weeks in your, in your daily Bible readings as we go through the Bible together. But when you read this, you might say, boy, that is, that's a depressing book. Lamenting. A whole book of the Bible about lamenting and sorrow and suffering and the things that have come upon the people of God. But it opens the door for us this morning to understand some things about God that probably we wouldn't say or study about in, in another setting. So that's what we're going to do today. And I hope you'll listen carefully. I felt that this was so important that I put it in a form that you could take with you and read it later. And um, think and meditate and chew on some of the truths that will be uh, shared this morning from this particular study on Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations. Now, Jeremiah, as you know, was called by God at about the age of 20 to deliver a message to Judah. He preached for 40 years. But the words and the message that Jeremiah preached... These words were not received by the people of God. They were rejected. They did not listen. So destruction and captivity that Jeremiah had prophesied came to pass. The warnings were not heeded and the people did not repent. It's a bad thing when people don't repent. Amen? It's a, it's a sad thing when people don't repent. I'll even go so far as to say the, the results... The outcome when people do not repent is always going to be negative. When people don't repent, the outcome, the result of that is never going to be good. Uh, repenting and living for God is something, well, it's what the Bible's all about. It tells us, and we're going to study about some of those things today. It was not an easy thing for Jeremiah to have spent Forty years of his life preaching a message. Repent. Turn back to God. Leave your idols. Come back and serve the true and living God. Change your ways. That was his message. Do you think that would be a popular message to preach and really go after in, a, in an aggressive way in our society today? Would it be well received? Would it be welcomed? No. Not by and large. Hopefully there would be some. Who would listen. Hopefully there would be some who would repent. But by and large the message would fall on deaf ears. Because people are not interested in hearing that. Which is tragic. With the things that are at stake. About that message repenting and turning to God. Forsaking your sin. And so Jeremiah was disappointed. Wouldn't you be disappointed after 40 years of preaching if you felt like you had gotten nowhere, accomplished nothing, and everything that you had warned the people about now had befallen them, and they were suffering as a result of their refusal to turn to God and repent? You'd feel perhaps like a failure. You'd feel a lot like Jeremiah did. So he saw what happened to the city. The city was destroyed. Many people died in famine and some other things that we're going to talk about. It was a horrible end to a story in many ways as, as the judgment and the warnings that, that Jeremiah had preached for years 
were actually fulfilled before his very eyes and Jerusalem was destroyed and God's people were decimated and killed and taken captive and the temple and the town and everything else. It was all destroyed. It was gone. And he sat down and he wept. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah is known, as most of you know, as the weeping prophet. That's the designation we recognize him by. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Inside your your um, study guide there, there's several scriptures that I'd like for us to go through together. And I provided them so that you won't have to flip through your Bible and hunt them down. You have them right there in front of you. You will need your Bible a little later, perhaps. Lamentations 1, verse 16. The book of Lamentations comes from the word lament. And again, it uh, has a negative connotation. Bad things. Sadness. Lamentations 1.16. Jeremiah says, For these things I weep. My eye, my eye overflows with water. Because the comforter who should restore my life is far from me. Lamentations 2 verse 11. My eyes fail with tears. My heart is troubled. My bile is poured out on the ground. If you would allow me to get a little bit more graphic perhaps there and put that into modern terminology, I was so sick and so troubled, I puked my guts out. That's basically what he's saying there. It's bad news. Horrible, horrendous, terrible things have happened. And he is sick to his stomach, literally. Lamentations 3, verses 48 through 49. My eyes overflow with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes flow and do not cease without interruption. And then going back into Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, the same man wrote, My soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears. Because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. In Jeremiah chapter 3 verses 48 and 49. Therefore you shall say this word to them. God says say this to them. Let my eyes flow with tears night and day. And let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people has been broken with a mighty stroke. With a very severe blow. Well the problem with Judah was this. Jeremiah 2, verses 12 and 13. We talked about this last Sunday. The Lord says, Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate. And I'd like for you to notice what the Lord is saying to these people as He warns them. He tells them of things that are yet to come. He says, If you don't change your ways, Punishment, retribution, bad things are coming. I'm giving you the chance to turn around. If you don't turn around, these things are going to happen. And this is what the Lord says. Be astonished. And be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. Why? For my people have committed two evils. And here in this short verse is summed up in in a summary form, in a nutshell... The, the problem, their sin, is described very simply. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. You remember last week we had this table up front and all kind of vessels and talked about how the Lord wants to fill those vessels, especially these vessels of ours. So the, the whole idea is that we are receptacles, we are vessels, we are sanctuaries for the presence of God in our lives. And it was the same with them. They have forsaken me, the Lord says, you have left me the fountain of living waters, the only source for living waters, you have left me. That's bad. That can't be anything but, but bad. When you forsake God... When you look in other directions, that can't be anything but bad. So number one was they forsook the Lord, who was the fountain of living waters. And then they hewed themselves cisterns. Man-made efforts to try to satisfy their needs. 
cisterns in the Old Testament. We talked about this last week. Were, were storage places where the water would run off and collect. And then during these dry periods, they could go to these cisterns and get water. It wasn't living water. It wasn't fresh water. But it was at least water. And they would go to these places. But the Lord describes their foolishness in these words. Not only did you leave me the fountain of living waters. You forsook me. That's bad enough. But then you, through man-made efforts, made your own cisterns in an attempt to satisfy your need. But it failed because they wouldn't even hold water. There's a lot of cisterns in Israel now and in that part of the world that hold no water. They don't work. They leak. Reminds me of a song we used to sing. When I was growing up in church, I can remember hearing those words. Only Jesus can satisfy your soul. And that's true. There's a longing in our hearts. Brother Dexter stood here with me last Sunday and I put my hand over his heart. And talked about how that there was a vessel right there. Those are the vessels God's concerned about. Those are the vessels that need to be filled. This place in me. That place in him. That place in you that's empty. That only God and God's presence can fill. That's what we're talking about today. Not literal water. But that place in you that can only be satisfied. And filled by the presence of the Lord in your life. Well... There it is in a nutshell, their sin. They left God, the fountain of living waters, and in man-made efforts, attempts to satisfy their own desires and lust, went out in hewed cisterns, metaphorically speaking, that held no water. So they were left high and dry, unsatisfied and thirsty still. Needs unmet. The glory days of Jerusalem are something that I'd like to talk about for just a moment as we um, teach here a little bit, getting ready to receive these other things that I feel like the Lord has for us. Jerusalem in those days, you'll remember that, that Saul built the temple and this, these David and Solomon, uh, not, not Saul, Solomon, um, Jerusalem was in its heyday. It, it was a glorious time in the history of the people of God. Jerusalem was world-renowned. Solomon's temple had been built. I don't know that we can appreciate the majesty of that building and how impressive it would have been. It wasn't necessarily large. Just this morning, I, I googled Solomon's temple, the cost of Solomon's temple. There's a lot of smart people in this world who do a lot of things with looking at the scripture and figure out what it would be in today's money, I think you'd find it astounding as I did that the things are, that are recorded in the Bible that were in Solomon's temple would, would in our day come to t- some $216 billion. I mean, you talk about all the gold and all the silver and all the things that were there. $216 billion. Quite impressive, I would say. The jewel of the earth, the apple of God's eye was this city of Jerusalem. The city, the walls, the beauty of Mount Zion, the feast that were held there and all the roads that led to this place where people from all over the world came. Can you imagine these feast days that were held in Jerusalem? And the throngs and the thousands of people that would be coming in from these roads and different from different parts of the world. And they gathered there to worship God and and have these feasts, just like on the day of Pentecost, one such feast was taking place. God's people were there. That was the glory days. I've just described to you the glory days. Remember when the queen of Sheba had heard so much about how wonderful the temple was, and how the kingdom was, and how Jerusalem was, and she traveled, and she came and looked at that, and the Bible says the queen looked at it, and she says, oh, the half has not been told about what I see here. Nobody's told the story yet. A very impressive thing. That was the glory days of Israel, really. But it's not that way anymore. Things have changed. God's message to Jeremiah was being rejected. The people had turned from the true and living God and began to worship idols. I don't think we can even understand how bad it had gotten. 
And we're just getting started in our, in our studies now through the prophets. We've looked at Isaiah and now Jeremiah. We'll be going into Ezekiel, Lord willing, next Sunday and following through. We're going to see in the Bible a lot of warnings and a lot of information about the way worship was being conducted there. And some of the things we're going to read about, I think you're going to find astounding that were happening in the temple behind closed doors where only God could see. Things that were happening, things that were taking place in God's house and around the temple area. So God's message through Jeremiah was rejected. We're going to read some of that message here in a few moments and some of the things. But basically it was you need to turn back to God. You need to forsake the idols and turn to the Lord. Repent of your ways and turn back to God. I want you to notice that was God's message. We always need to understand that this was God's message, not Jeremiah's message. Is there a difference? A big difference. As a matter of fact, as you read the book of Jeremiah, you'll find out that Jeremiah didn't particularly like the message. He didn't particularly want to preach the message. And that's always the way it is, I think, with the preacher. You have to always remember it's God's message, not the preacher's message. It's a message that the Lord gives, and sometimes preachers preach messages that they would rather not preach. That's because it's God's message. It, it, listen, the, the preacher is only a messenger. It's not his message. That's why I say to you so often, I don't have any control over what's in the Bible. I don't have any authority to take parts of it out. I don't have any authority to neglect certain parts of it. It's not my message. He called me to share his message, not my message. And that's true with all of us. We accept God's word, rightly divided. And so sometimes we need to remember, don't, don't get mad at the messenger. If you don't like the message, as long as it's consistent with the word of God. Jeremiah proclaimed what God told him to proclaim. Now, as he did that, it was God's message. Was it received? Answer that for me. No, it wasn't. The people laughed. Wickedness increased. The king, now the king, the king actually took the scroll that Jeremiah's words were written on and they read some of it to him and it angered the king so much that he took that scroll and threw it into the fire and burned it up. And the Bible says that Jeremiah had to turn around and rewrite it again so that we'd have record of it. So no, it wasn't accepted at all. You'll read that in Jeremiah 36, 20 through 25. The prophet was persecuted, he was ridiculed, he was imprisoned, and he was hated. Now Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 18, 1-11, had previously been told by God to go to the potter's house and hear my words. This is a passage uh, I think most of you are probably familiar with. And it's going to set up some very important things we're going to cover over the next few minutes about God. The Lord said, Jeremiah, I want you to go down to the potter's house. Now, every community would have had a potter's house. It's where they made, somebody took clay and made pots and dishes and plates and bowls and, and things like that. I've got pieces of pottery at home. I've told you about this, I think, that, that were made from well before the days of Christ that I kind of scratched up by the ground when I was in the Holy Land. Bought some of it home, so I would always have it. Potters were very common. So the Lord says, Jeremiah, I want you to go down to the potter's house. I want to tell you something when you get there. So Jeremiah goes to the potter's house and there's a guy who has a, has a table that's spinning around and he pushes it with his, with his feet and it spins. He puts the clay on it and takes the clay, puts it in the middle and you've seen how they fashion that clay and they mold it and they make it. And the potter began to make a work on wheels. But then the potter didn't like the way it was looking, so he pushed it all back down together again and he started all over and made it a vessel. Perhaps that he did like. And the Lord looked at him and said, now listen, you need to understand, Jeremiah. I am the potter. You are the clay. And you go through that whole passage and you begin to understand that the part of the message of that is that God is the creator 
and we are His creation. God is the maker and we are what He has made. And He can make us and He can remake us. And if you read through that passage, He can also break us or destroy us because He's God. God is sovereign. God is overall. God is the creator, the maker. He is, the Bible says, it is He that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. So we have, as God's creation, we have this obligation because He's the creator, He's the potter, He's the maker, we have an obligation to surrender to his hands as he molds and makes us. So, we're going to continue now as we understand that. The Lord says, he, in this passage, Jeremiah chapter 18, here he, Jeremiah, and we, here today, are reminded that God is the creator. He made us and can remake us Or even destroy if he so chooses. Verse 11. Listen to what verse 11 says in that passage. Thus says the Lord. Behold I am fashioning a disaster. And devising a plan against you. What a message. Forgot to say that. Behold I am fashioning a disaster. And devising a plan against you. Return now everyone from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. In other words, repent. Turn from your wicked ways, your evil way, and make your ways and your doings good. You need to repent. You need to turn around. You see, this is in the context of Jeremiah 18. God has that right. God is molding and making this piece of clay from which we are. And he has the right to remake it again. And we have to surrender to him to allow that to happen. And he's telling them this. I'm fashioning a disaster. I'm devising a plan against you. I just don't even like the way that sounds. I don't want the Lord devising a plan against me. I'd much rather him be devising a plan for me. Right? Which... It happens to be the context for another verse that most of you have heard, which says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper and do you good. That's God's plan too, when we'll obey Him and do what He's asked us to do. Sadly, the people rejected the warnings from God through Jeremiah and others over a period of many years. Jeremiah wasn't the only one who preached. All the prophets preached during this period of time. And they were asking for repentance. They were asking for the people to turn around and come back to God. And the Bible says that this judgment finally fell on the people of God. It was severe and painful. And many tears from the eyes of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, were found. Then after the fact, Jeremiah writes what we now call lamentations. So what we're looking at here now is all this has happened as we get to the book of Lamentations. This is, this is already, the judgment has fallen, difficult times have come, and Jeremiah, his book about Lamentations explains that to us. Well, we might think that, that this all just happened in a matter of hours, but it didn't. There was a siege of Jerusalem, which means the army surrounded the city for a couple of years, cut off their food supplies. Now you think about that. What would happen in Wake County if all around the borders of Wake County, no trucks, no tractors, no airplanes, no cars, no trains, nothing was allowed to come into Wake County for two years? Would we be hurting? We wouldn't be able to get our Utz potato chips from Joe or the Pepsis or any of the, any of the things that, that we have come to love. The bread, the milk. My goodness, one report on the, on the weather forecast that says we might be having snow tonight. It wrecks our economy. 
just a few minutes. You go to the grocery store and there's nothing left. Milk and the bread's all gone just from one little 20-minute announcement. And if there was nobody to replenish that supply, well, Jerusalem was under siege for months and months and months. And things got bad. I believe it probably got far worse than we realized. And we're going to read some of that today. I mean, it was pathetic what was happening in that city. And this went on and on until finally the walls were torn down and the the final conquering came. and And the temple was torn down and they were taken captive. It was some of the things that were happening were just absolutely terrible. Almost unimaginable. That's what we read about in the book of Lamentations and things that you will read. We're going to go quickly now. Jeremiah's writings remind us of several important truths about God. Number one, that God is creator, he's sovereign, and he's omnipotent. He's the potter, he's the maker. That's who God is. Could somebody say amen? I mean, we believe that, right? I, I don't believe in... I don't believe in, in, in evolution. I don't think we came from a monkey or scum on a pond. I don't believe any of that. I believe it exactly like the Bible says it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I believe it. So God is sovereign. He's creator. He's omnipotent. I, I just think we need to settle that in our own minds once, one more time. If you believe that God is the creator, would you say amen? Now, number two, God is holy. God is holy. Burkhoff, in his systematic theology, which is a classic, said this, that holiness is that perfection of God in virtue of which he eternally wills and maintains his own moral excellence. And then it says abhors sin, in other words, God hates sin, and demands purity in his moral creatures. Now, you have to chew on that for a bit, but we know that's absolutely true from what the Bible says. Let's just uh, allow me, because I already have these paper clipped, and I can read them quickly. You have them there for you to read later. Leviticus eleven forty four. let me read these scriptures to you. The Lord says, For I am the Lord your God, You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Does that sound pretty plain? Does it? Leviticus 19, verse 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then in 1 Peter 1, uh, Chapter 1, verse 16, the Bible says, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. How many of you know we're supposed to be holy? If you believe that, would you say amen? Why are we supposed to be holy? Because God said it. God said, I am holy and I want you to be holy. In that sense, we're supposed to be a... Just for the sake of illustration, a chip off the old block. We are created in his likeness and his image. Right? And he wants us... We have the capability to do that with his help. Because that's what he created us to be. And he looked at his people point blank. We read two times where he said that. I, the Lord, your God, am holy, and I want you to be holy. He wants us to be his holy people. As a matter of fact, he requires that, as we have read. So God is holy. Amen? Number three, God is love. Now, we know that God is love. We've heard that all of our lives. We're going to read that now, even in this time of of suffering in the book of Lamentations. If you would turn with me in your Bible, we're going to read about God's love in Lamentations chapter 3. This book of the Bible that is so noted for these horrendous things, some of which I'm about to share with you, even in that book of the Bible, we see God's love illustrated. Lamentations chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. Talking about the terrible things that have already happened. 
some of which we'll talk about in just a moment. But here's God's love illustrated even in the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah says, this I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And then we read verses 31 through 33. For the Lord will not cast off forever, though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. Now listen to verse 33. Why did God do all these horrible things to his people? Why was Jerusalem taken captive? Why were they under siege? Why were the city destroyed? It's because of their sin. Verse 33 says, For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. That wasn't his will. That's not what he desired. If you are a parent, you know by experience, sometimes you have to punish your children and discipline your children. And it's not because you dislike them. It's because you love them. And because you love them, you have to help them understand the peril and the dangers and the ways that they're going. Well, that's the way it was with God with his people. So he says in verse 33, he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. He's not some kind of, of, of person who delights in, in disciplining and, and bringing retribution and and punitive measures upon his people. He doesn't delight in that all at all. But he's a loving God. And because he loves us, he does those things. And his compassions never fail. And if we'll turn around and come back to him, he'll receive us again, which is exactly why he sends that punishment to begin with. To try to turn us around and bring us back to him. So we've seen that God is the creator. And you said amen to that. And we've seen that God is holy. And you said amen to that. And can you say amen to the fact that God is love? Now, we have no problem with any of that. Basically, the church world has no problem with any of that. But number four is where we begin to see a problem in the theology of many people. Not only is God a God of love, but God is also just God does what's right. Amen? Now, if, if you go to the courtroom looking for justice, you want a judge who is just. Amen? If you are innocent and you're carried into a courtroom, you want a judge who will do what's right. You want a judge, if you have been falsely accused, if he does what's right, if he's a just judge, he's going to look at the evidence and say, I find no fault in you. Case dismissed, you're free to go. If you're innocent, that'd be the right thing, wouldn't it? Would it be the right thing to look at somebody and say, you are innocent, you're free to go. If all the evidence in the case said that this person was a murderer, this person had committed an act of violence, he'd taken someone's life, would it be right and just for the judge to say, okay, now you're free to go? So the point is that God always does what is right and good. God is just. Not only is he a God of love, not only is he a holy God who has standards and a God who is a God of love, but he's also a God who is just. Now let's understand what that means. Jeremiah chapter 3. There again, we're trying to draw these lessons from Jeremiah from whom whose writings we are studying. Jeremiah 3, verses 12 and 13. Go proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. 
I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree and you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. So what he's doing is he's giving them the opportunity to turn around. He's giving them the opportunity to do what is right. And that's an, that's an oft-repeated thing in the prophets. Although they were doing wrong, although they were sinning, although they had gone after other gods, God says, return to me. I, I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful. Yes, I love you. I will not remain angry forever. I want you to come back. That's just an example. He's talking to Israel. Many times this is said about Judah as well. I want my people to come back. I want my people to come back. I want my people to come back, he says. But he's just because if they don't come back, he says these things. And there again, I'll read them for you. In Psalm 7, verse 11, the Bible says God is a just judge. And God is angry with the wicked every day. In Galatians 6, verse 7, this is a passage that you have heard, I'm quite sure, many times. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And then in Ezekiel, the final example, and we're getting close here. In Ezekiel, he says, verse eight, uh, chapter 18. Ezekiel 18. You've heard this one before. The soul who sins shall die. It's pretty plain, isn't it? The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. In other words, we answer for ourselves. You know what? God has no grandchildren. God has children. God has no grandchildren. Because my mom and dad have lived for the Lord for decades and decades. That doesn't make me a Christian. Because I come from a Christian family. Doesn't make me a Christian. We are Christians because we've surrendered our lives to the Lord. We're going to answer for our own sin. Or we're going to be rewarded for our own righteousness. Therefore, says the scripture, I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord of God. Turn and live. Wow. Do you get the, the message there? I mean, God is saying this. Now, you think, you think God is going to now follow through with what he said? God doesn't lie. So what we're learning here now, if you'll think with me, number one, that God is the creator and that gives him the right and the authority to call right from wrong. Amen? I don't have a standard. I don't set a standard. God has set the standard. And it's not to be meddled with and messed with and subtracted from and added to. God has given the standard. God is the creator. And God is holy. We would agree on that and have agreed on that. He demands purity in his moral creatures. He abhors sin. He will not reward sin. He will not ignore sin. He abhors sin. But yet God loves us, the Bible teaches, and calls us back to him. But even after saying that God is just or that God is a God of love, he is also a God who is just. One does not cancel out the other. 
I hope I can make that plain today. Because we know that he is holy. And we know that he's a God of love. But he is also a just God. So just a just God doesn't condemn the innocent. And a just God does not free or exonerate the sinner. Amen? The only thing that can change that is repentance on the part of an individual when they turn back to God and repent. Am I right? Is that biblical? It takes more than just kind of trying to do better. It takes an act of God in our hearts and in our lives as we repent of our sin and yield to Him. And He comes in and lives inside of us and and empowers us to do what we never could have done before. He transforms and changes our lives. And then God calls us to serve Him. But you know what? God never promises an easy, trouble-free life. I'm sorry. He doesn't. I know you hear from some preachers that he does. But I will tell you on the authority of God's word that God never promises you an easy, trouble-free life. It's not in Scripture. And all you have to do is look at the lives of the prophets and you'll find out that they were persecuted and murdered for taking their stand. Now, these were outspoken individuals who took the message of God unapologetically to the world and it cost them their lives. And then you turn to the New Testament and you'll find out that all the apostles met the same fate, persecution or death. They were never superstars. They were never crowd pleasers. They were never people that were promoted and and just by the society and looked up to and everybody just thought they were grand. Paul said, we're the off-scouring of the earth. We're the scum of the earth in the eyes of the world. Boy, is that not coming true? You take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. You stand up for the things that the Bible stands up for nowadays and see if it doesn't cause some troubles. And the Lord never said we weren't going to have difficulties and struggles and troubles. As a matter of fact, Jesus said exactly the opposite. Jesus said, in the world you shall have trouble. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And he said, I will never leave you and never forsake you. And he said, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the Lord said seven times in the book of Revelation to the seven churches of Asia, to each of the churches he made this promise, to him who overcomes, I will give him this particular thing. And it's different for every church. But the point being, what do you mean overcome? They don't give gold medals to people who don't overcome. Right? Think about the Olympics. You know what you got to do? You got to lay aside the Krispy Kreme donuts. If you're going to get a gold medal, you can't eat. Hey, listen, these athletes get up at four o'clock in the morning and they may go swim for three hours before they ever get up and go to the first class at school. And then they get out of school and they go back to the pool and they swim another two or three hours. And they train. You've seen the stories on the Olympics, the ice skaters, the, the runners. The, it doesn't matter who they are, the gymnasts, whoever they are. They are so dedicated to that. They don't give away gold medals unless you're an overcomer. And you overcome all through the, the, the daily schedule of your life so that when the battle comes, you can still be victorious and overcome on that day. And that's what the Lord says to us. And yeah, you're going to have trials. And yeah, it's going to be difficult. But I'll tell you what, when I look at this message from God to Isaiah, excuse me, to Jeremiah, I think it is, I think it's so important for today. And if you take anything at all away from this today, I'd like for you to take these five things. Number one, that God is the creator and he's sovereign and he's omnipotent. We, we got to understand who God is. One, one popular preacher 
And I won't even call his name because if I do, it's going to turn some of you off. But he was telling the truth when he said this. He said, one day it just dawned on him. And he said, you are God and I am not. You are God and I am not. And that's one thing we need to learn. That he is God and we are not God. Therefore, we surrender to him. God is holy. And he abhors sin. And he demands purity in his moral creatures. And he has a right to do that. Because he's God. He's the potter. God is a God of love. And in that, we love to rejoice, don't we? Amen. But God is also a just God. He does what's right. And I just got to say it as plain as I know how to play it, know how to say it. If you think we're going to claim all the promises of God without being who God has called us to be, we're only fooling ourselves. Because many of the promises of God, many of the promises of God are conditional. If you will do this, then I will do this, God says. And if we don't do that, then we don't get the promise. God is just. He doesn't reward the wicked. He doesn't punish the innocent. He's a just judge who will do what's right. That doesn't mean he doesn't love us. The two go hand in hand. They're not competitive. Neither one cancels out the other. God's love will never cancel out his justice. But his justice never means that he doesn't love. Both are attributes and qualities of our God. And then he calls us to serve him. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to sing this song. It's a song of surrender. It's a song of um, recognizing that we need God. And while we sing this, if you have a need in your life, I would encourage you to come and maybe bow and speak to the Lord about it for a few moments while we sing. Pass me not, gentle Savior, hear my humble cry.
softly in the background there. And I suggest if you are here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, or there is something in your heart and your life that you know the Lord would not be pleased with, this would be a mighty fine time just to bow and say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. Lord, I want you to cleanse me and wash me. You ask me to turn around. You ask me to repent. You ask me to change my ways. I want to do that to you today because I want to please you. So as we sing this one more time, I'd like for you to consider if there's anything that you'd like to surrender to the Lord today or any prayer that you'd like to make. One more verse and one course, and then we'll pray. If you need to come, I'd invite you to come. Verse 1. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. that God is the God of love. But I'm glad he's a just God. And I'm glad he's a holy God. And he loves us and he wants us to be more and more like him every day of our lives. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would take these simple truths, these principles that we've highlighted from the book of Jeremiah today and help us to understand what you expect from us. You give us warnings all throughout the Bible about how we should live our lives and surrender to you and come into alignment with, with who you are. So help us. Help us to listen. Help us to be careful about what we say. Help us to be careful about the attitudes that we have. Help us to be careful about where we go and what we do and how we act. How we represent you in this world because people are watching. And we need to make a difference for you. So help us, we pray. Oh, Lord, during this week, a lot of people will be traveling. Grant traveling mercies to those who are away. Oh, Lord, bring us back safe. Keep our our people protected. Put a hedge of protection around each one, we pray. And we'll thank you, Father, for all your blessings in our lives. And all God's people said, amen. Would you greet someone before you leave today and just let them know how appreciated and love they are.